This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, card hat on. I have to take my So that's the part dedicated to sweets. And... You see all those big bags there? There's sand for the beach volley inside. <laughs> yep. Those are the bet sand for the volleyball court. No. Yep. Amazing. Italy World is one monument. It's same Colosseo. It's same Duomo di Milano. It's same for you. You are American. Disney World. That's right, there is actually a new Disney World-style theme park being built just for food. And we got to visit. In case you're wondering who we are, we're Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this week, we're in Italy, at least for part of the show. Not just for fun, I hasten to add. But because that's where this new theme park is about to open, in Bologna in northern Italy. And it's called Italy World. You might have heard of Italy. It's spelled eat like a mashup of eating and Italy. It's a store. There's one in Chicago, L.A., Boston, a couple in New York, a whole bunch in Italy, and a few others around the world, too. London, Tokyo, Istanbul. And we went to Italy World, the ultimate Italy, not just because we wanted to get the exclusive behind-the-scenes sneak peek at a site everyone is going to be buzzing about in just a few weeks. Although we totally did want to get that scoop for you. But also, we wanted to understand what Eatly World means for how we shop for food. This episode, we're asking, where did the modern supermarket come from? Have we always shopped for food this way? How will we shop for food in the future? And what does that say about our relationship with food? That's the history. But, you know, we're also all about the science. And so this episode, we're diving into the economic logic of food retail. Turns out, grocery stores are terrible at making money. But why? And what can Eatly show us about how to make the business of selling food pay? And on top of all that, you'll get to join us behind the scenes at Eatly World and go truffle hunting. Okay, picture yourself in the 1800s. You need food. Where are you going to get it? It would have been a sort of an old wooden structure. You would have walked in. There would have been a counter and and a clerk or clerks behind it. And you'd come in with a list of stuff that you needed, and they'd, they'd fill it. Michael Rahman wrote a book called Grocery, the Buying and Selling of Food in America. And he's describing a log cabin. It's literally Little House on the Prairie style. You'd ask for a pound of nails, and they'd put it in a little paper bag for you. You'd ask for a pound of sugar. You'd ask for a slab of bacon. You could get tools, shovels, shoes, uh, any number of things. 
That's how it basically was up until the Civil War. These log cabin-style general stores, these were where you'd get your dried food, your cured food, anything that didn't go bad quickly. For fresh food, most people pretty much grew their own and then canned and preserved it for the winter. But in the late 1800s and early 1900s, life was changing in America. A lot of people started moving to cities. They weren't growing and canning all their own food. They needed more options for buying food. And the market responded. You start getting shops that specialize in perishables, greengrocers for vegetables, butchers for meat. And then the grocer, that's where you get your boxed and canned goods. And for decades, that's how we shop. But today, that's not how most of us in America shop for food. There's one huge centralized store, and that's where you get everything. So how did we get to this? How did we end up with a supermarket? You don't think of the supermarket as a thing that someone invented. But it is, and they did. It was invented by Michael Cullen. And he called it King Cullen, and it was in Queens. Michael Cullen worked for a normal general grocery store. Again, at the time, grocery stores were stores that sold dry and canned goods. But Michael had an idea. This Cullen fellow said, we should put everything under one roof. We should have dairy here. We should sell meat. We should sell everything. So Michael went to his boss and said, how do you like my genius plan? And he was rebuffed, and he said, I'm going to go out and do this on my own. And so he found space in Jamaica, Queens, 3,000 square foot former parking garage and turn it into the first supermarket, a market that had produce, that had fish, that had meat, that had dairy, that had groceries. And that was the first supermarket. This is in the 1930s. And you might be picturing your local Safeway or Albertsons, but scale that way down. It was much smaller. It had only about 200 products in it. By the 1990s, that had gone up to 7,000 products, an extraordinary number. Now we have between 40,000 and 50,000 products. In other words, our supermarkets today have 200 times more products than King Cullen, which is kind of insane. Michael Cullen didn't just come up with this idea for a supermarket out of thin air. There were other changes afoot, changes in technology that made his idea possible. What allowed this to happen was uh, refrigeration. And once we had refrigeration, then you could have all manner of food. Hold that thought, folks. We are coming back to refrigeration many times, actually, because I'm writing a book about it right now. But refrigeration, as near and dear to my ice-cold heart as it is, that's not the only innovation that made the supermarket possible. For instance, in 1916, Piggly Wiggly introduced individualized shopping, or you pick your own food instead of handing your list to a clerk uh, who would then fill your order. You'd go around and self-serve. This was how you would have done your food shopping beforehand. You would have just handed over your shopping list and trusted the clerk to choose your food. Now you need a basket to haul around the groceries you pick out yourself. That was an innovation, a basket on wheels, which was introduced in the 1930s. And then the larger shopping cart, which I and my fellow Brits call a trolley, that had to be invented too. So all these developments were very slow to happen, and they really wouldn't take firm hold throughout the country until after World War II. Michael's point is, when King Cullen first opened, it brought all these innovations together. Self-service, shopping baskets, refrigeration, everything under one roof. But it still took a while for the supermarket concept to catch on elsewhere. And even at King Cullen, people shopped the old way for the most part, picking up groceries on several trips a week rather than doing one big shop for the family. Usually the, the man would be working, and if there was a car, he would be using it. So the woman of the household would have gone shopping three, four times a week and would only have been able to bring back as much as she could carry. And refrigeration. That was a problem, too. Because you didn't have a good refrigerator at home, you had a cooler 
but it was mainly to keep leftovers. You didn't store food in it because there wasn't much space. So we did our shopping on a regular basis. Once we had cars and refrigerators, then we could start making big runs to the supermarket and fill up our car and fill up our pantry and fill up our, our big fridge. After World War II, people started leaving the cities in droves for the suburbs, and interstate highway systems were being built, and there were cheaper tracts of land for supermarkets to buy and build bigger and bigger stores on, and the country's food system was changing too. All this material for making bombs and, and driving the war effort, now they had to find some use for it, and we ended up putting it into fertilizer for the soil and, and creating mass-produced foods. As it happens, the nitrogen fixing process that makes explosives is the same process you use to make fertilizer. So that was an easy switch. And then tank factories are churning out combine harvesters to allow farms to scale up. And food companies that have ramped up production to feed the military during the war, they use that capacity to fill the consumer market with processed food after the war. So we had all this food manufacturing taking over. We had the highways and the spreading out into the suburbs where you had plenty of parking. We had roads, we had the infrastructure of the 1950s, we had the automobile, the rise of the automobile. These are the main things that allowed us to have a supermarket that we know today, filled with processed food in giant stores surrounded by vast parking areas. This all sounds like what I grew up with, which are, you know, big supermarkets with big parking lots and basically a weekly trip to the market. That's how Michael grew up, too. So Saturdays were given over. That was our hunter-gatherer day. Uh, we'd go and we'd collect our food for the week. Uh, and then we'd sort of stay inside and eat that food for a week. And then we'd go back out on Saturday and, and resupply. But even though these supermarkets look huge and impressive, they're actually a really tough business to run in terms of the economics of it all. The food retail system, it works basically on a 1% margin. 1%? I wouldn't get out of bed for that. That means that if you're a family business with, say, 20 stores uh, doing $500 million in sales, half a billion dollars in sales, you're still considered a small family business because you're only making 1% margin. You're only making $5 million on that $500 million sales, uh, gross sales. $5 million sounds like a lot, but it's really not for a business of that size with that many employees and that much overhead. You know, what kind of business model is that? You know, a little shift in sales can seriously fuck them up. A store remodel costs four to five million dollars. That's a year's profit for, you know, a, a business doing 500 million dollars in sales. It's a crazy business model. Nobody in their right mind would get into it. So I don't know why people get into it. Supermarkets all basically only compete on price, and each one is trying to undercut its competitors for the cheapest block of cheddar cheese. So they make only a tiny sliver of profit for each product they sell. We just kept driving that margin down in an effort to sell more goods and move more product. You can't raise prices once they're down. You just have to create bigger and bigger volume. Mom and pop supermarkets have mostly been bought up at this point by chains because, like Michael says, the only way you can make any money in a business with such small margins is by scaling up and selling more stuff. These tiny profit margins are not the only reason the supermarket business is such a challenging one. We talked about all this with Sunil Gupta. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. So a large issue in a fresh produce department is a lot of food is wasted, which is called shrinkage. And the low margins of this industry means that shrinkage is a big part of your profitability or loss. A supermarket has lots and lots of super perishable products. That leads to a lot of shrinkage. And like we said, the margins are terrible. 
And then it gets even worse for supermarkets. Two things that happened in, the, in 1988 that really signaled the change of our food retail system. The first was Walmart decided it could sell groceries. And because of its vast distribution network, was able to become the, the largest grocer in the country overnight in 1988 when it introduced its first grocery stores. Once it did this, all marketers saw that anybody could sell food and that is why other people such as Target got into the game, as did many other players. This might seem obvious, but I'm going to spell it out anyway. In a business that's competing almost entirely on price, Walmart wins. They have huge warehouses. They move product all over the country incredibly efficiently. They purchase in such massive quantities that they determine the price of a lot of our food. Grocers will shake their heads saying, you know, they are selling Caprice sun juice, whatever that juice is, for the same cost that we can buy it. So how are we going to make our in our margins? Um, and yet we have to sell Capri juice because our customer wants it. So they try and do as best they can, but they just can't compete. Walmart has made the commodity food product impossible to keep, compete with for, for the grocer. So that's one huge threat to the supermarket business model. Second thing was Whole Foods uh, goes national. Whole Foods began in the uh, early 80s. And it, in 1988, it decided to branch out, buying new stores, not building new ones, but buying existing stores and opening Whole Foods in there. Whole Foods at the time was niche. And even though it seems like a big deal now and people use it as a cultural meme, it still is really niche. Amazon and Whole Foods together have less than 2% of the grocery store market today. But Whole Foods is also important. Because it reflects and it encourages a shift in the way many Americans started thinking about food in the past couple decades. You get the rise of the farmer's market. You get the start of more people caring about where their food comes from and wanting to know those stories. That's what it was. They made you feel closer. You know, they have a cheese person there. They have knowledgeable people in their fish departments telling you where the fish is from. They did a great job of merchandising food. There's another aspect of shopping at Whole Foods that a lot of people seem to love, at least judging by the fact that Whole Foods is expanding that section of the store. And that's the salad bar, the pizza oven, the station with all the cooked meat and mashed potatoes and stir-fried tofu, the sushi counter, the pre-wrapped sandwiches. Now with the busy American family and our lack of cooking know-how and our lack of patience with cooking and our our desire for speed and quickness in our busy lives, grocers see a, a, huge, a bigger demand for higher quality prepared foods. We think of supermarkets as places to buy food, but increasingly they're places that make food too and then sell the food they made. It all started pretty simply. Some supermarkets would sell rotisserie chicken maybe, and then they noticed another opportunity. You know, when fruit was going bad, they needed to reduce shrink, the, the term for waste in, in the grocery business. So they'd take fruit and they'd cut it up and use it um, and sell it in deli cups as cut fruit. And then they started selling a few pre-prepared dishes, meatloaf, lasagna, using up pre-ground meat that hadn't sold. And it snowballed from there. More and more realize that people want prepared foods. They're struggling to figure out how to make money doing it. Because, yeah, the prepared foods do help with shrink. You can cook the veggies that are a little past their prime and give them a second lease on life. But it turns out that the business of selling cooked food is also a hard one to make any money in. I mean, it's hard to make money for a restaurant, even when that restaurant has a, a, a wine and liquor license and can sell booze and wine for triple the, the price. It's hard for restaurants to make money. It's even harder for grocery stores to make money serving prepared food. 
um, because it's so labor intensive. So there are already a lot of problems. Walmart is forcing the cost of food down. People want prepared foods, but that's hard to make money on. And now? The retail industry is going through a big transformation. Uh, They're under pressure from Amazons of the world. You think Walmart is big? Meet Amazon. With grocery delivery, meal kit delivery, people don't even want to go to the store these days. They don't have time. They want their food delivered. They want it pre-portioned and packaged and easy. Even easier. And Amazon is tough to beat when it comes to online retail. So does that mean that brick-and-mortar grocery stores are totally doomed? Not necessarily. At least Oscar Farinetti doesn't think so. Oscar is the lunatic and visionary behind Italy and the Italy World theme park. And that is where we're going next, to see what his business model can tell us about the future of food retail. Today, the prospects for supermarkets aren't looking so great. But the store we told you about at the beginning of the show, Italy, it has branches opening all over the world. So we went to Italy to talk to the founder. Picture Mario from Super Mario Brothers. He's the short, round one with the mustache and the big smile. That is Oscar Farinetti, pretty much. I know only 200 words in English. It's terrible for me. But luckily, Oscar mostly talks with his hands. He waves his arms around so much that the biggest challenge during the interview was making sure he didn't hit the mic. Oscar likes to say he was born into food. His dad ran a pasta factory and a coffee roaster. And then when Oscar was 18, his dad opened a mega Walmart-style combo grocery store department store. Because my father was one Entrepreneur, poet with big vision, and opening 1972, the first hypermarket, one of the first hypermarkets in Italy. Oscar started to work with his dad six years later, and pretty much the first thing he did was tell his dad that he wanted to get out of the grocery business entirely and specialize in electronics. I understand in the second day that uh, this work will be the future. Remember, we stay in 1978. In Italy, the television was black and white. And record players were the size of houses. But Oscar saw the future. He realized that the next 20 years were going to see huge innovation in electronics. But he also found these clunky 70s-era appliances kind of amazing already. For me, for example, one washing machine don't was one washing machine, one one magic white box. When you introduce uh, Robas Porca... To translate, Oscar is saying you might just see a washing machine, but he sees a magical white box, a box where you can put in dirty things and clean ones come out. You understand? This is my vision was incredible, no? What was genuinely incredible was Oscar's flair for the dramatic, even when he was selling things like washing machines or refrigerators. He'd ship fridges full of food as a surprise. He'd send a book along with a huge television to remind people to keep reading. And Oscar got rich. In the 80s and 90s, Oscar was boss of an entire chain of electronic stores called Uni Euro. It was like the Italian version of Radio Shack, but less depressing. But then in 2002, he sold the business to go back into food. Why? Again, Oscar saw the future. He saw those early Nokia flip phones, and he read the writing on the wall. Before this, I sell one telephone, one organizer, one stereo, one photo camera, one video camera. We sell many products. Now... All in this. Oscar is waving his iPhone around as he speaks. It's terrible. It's not work. But there was something else. His whole life, Oscar has been in love with food. 
electronics was just a fling. I love to eat uh, when I born, every time of my life. It's very normal for when people that born in Alba. Alba is the capital of the best food in Italy. It's the land of Barolo, Barbaresco, White Raffle. Oscar's first foray into the food world, that wasn't such a hit. He started a restaurant. The name was Osteria Fori Porta. It was one crash, terrible. Because I don't understand that it's not possible only restoration. He means restaurant. It's not good. And after, I have a new idea of the integration. And this is Oscar's genius insight, the integration. If I wanted to sound like a business school professor, I'd say the synergy. Like we said, the restaurant business is a tough one. The supermarket business is just as bad. And that's the thing you need to understand about Italy. It's this weird hybrid of two businesses that are equally difficult to make any money in, and yet somehow it makes money. Sunil Gupta, the Harvard Business School professor we talked to earlier, he's so intrigued by this, he wrote an entire case study on Italy. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Given that the world is going online and Amazon is going to start Amazon Fresh and everybody else, the transaction-based model is not going to survive on its own. Sunil, like everyone else we talk to, thinks that the traditional supermarket is pretty much doomed. But Italy is selling food and making money. And Sunil wanted to know... How? Turns out there are a number of reasons. First, they've cracked the prepared foods problem. Like at a lot of supermarkets, they use the food that is starting to look not quite so fresh, but it's still totally fine and tasty. It goes to one of the store's many restaurants and is transformed into a delicious dish. For example, the fish. In my store of the fish, the first day is for to sell. In the second, where we go in the restaurant, I don't have 
nothing in the third day. You understand? Bye. So far, so similar to Whole Foods. But Italy's prepared foods are a little different. Italy has entire mini restaurants inside the store where you can sit down and order restaurant-priced food and you can drink wine, which helps the bottom line too. Plus, because the restaurants are in a grocery store, people don't linger as much and you can turn the tables faster. Whereas in most restaurants, profits are limited by the amount of people you can seat. It's a win-win. Oscar's figured out another way to make this hybrid work. Italy's system for cutting waste also means the menu at Italy restaurants keeps changing, which keeps them exciting and new for repeat customers. And then what's more, customers who've eaten a tasty thing in those restaurants, well, they're much more likely to buy that tasty thing on their way out the door. If you can easily find the same product that you just ate right five feet away, there is a much more greater likelihood that you'll actually stop at the counter and pick up that meat or cheese or whatever pasta that then you say, oh, let me try it myself. And by the way, they provide the school just in case you want to learn more. So I think they sort of figured out that the, the desire of consumers to act on that impulse is much higher when they just had a great experience. A great experience? That's a description you never hear about a visit to the grocery store. But this is where Oscar's magic really lies. At the new Italy store in downtown Boston, there are four restaurants and an Italian-style grocery store and a fishmonger and a cooking school. You can take classes on how to make that delicious pasta dish you just ate. You can watch the pasta maker behind the glass. It's theater. And this brings us back to the other big trend in food retail, other than prepared foods. Merchandising, storytelling, turning grocery shopping into an experience. Like we said, Whole Foods started down this path back in the 80s. But Oscar has taken it to a whole nother level. One big space when it's possible to buy what you eat, and it's possible to eat what you buy, and this is possible to learn all, no? This is the secret of uh, my company. Shop, eat, learn. That's the Italy mantra. You hear it all the time there. It's the washing machine trick all over again. The same way Oscar made home appliances thrilling, now he does that for food. Oscar pointed out that when you go to a store to buy a cell phone, there's like a few paragraphs of description to convince you to buy, say, a Samsung instead of an iPhone. But at the grocery store, if you're looking at five different kinds of apples, you get the name and the price. That's it. Whole Foods started telling stories about food with little profiles of farmers, but that didn't go far enough for Oscar. For this reason, born Italy, because I don't understand, because this product don't have one storytelling fantastic when call me ma why you invent italy for to describe one apple unsurprisingly when oscar first began writing his apple poetry 10 years ago everyone thought he was completely insane it's all my life that the people think that i'm crazy but i like he's a i think call him a maverick or a visionary in some ways uh, so the lesson is how you can take an old traditional industry and completely reimagine that. And Oscar's blend of shopping, eating, and learning, it's a success. Italians actually shop at Italy. And now he's opened stores all over the world. Italy rakes in tens of millions of dollars in profit each year. But reinventing the grocery store business was never enough for Oscar. From the very beginning, when he opened his first store in Torino, he had a grand plan for something more. Italy World. Ah. Uh was my dream from the day after the opening of Torino. Because we have the integration of three activities very important to buy, to eat, and to learn. 
but the agricultural and the transformation. They were missing. The story of farming, the story of food processing, that part of the story still needed to be told. And Oscar had an idea for how to do it. Uh, we will have small lambs. Yes, lambs will be born here. Ma anche but, also, mucche. but also cows, yes. So will, kid, yeah, will people be able to see uh, them giving birth? or? I don't know. Why not? We were shown around the Italy World site by Tomas Bartoli. He's the architect for Italy World. And Silvia Zanelli works in the communication department. She translated. Poor Tomas. He's an architect. He's used to working on grocery stores. And now he's trying to figure out how to deal with pregnant pigs and mountains of animal poo. Tomas told us the poop will get carted off and composted. Italy World will smell lovely. But yes, people can visit baby lambs and lemon groves and pasta factories. There are 200 types of animals, 2,000 types of plants. Some of the uh, fruit trees. We see figs. Figs as well, yeah, figs. Um, Peach trees and uh, there's cheesemakers making the cheese right there in front of your eyes and a windmill grinding grain and an olive oil press making olive oil that's the pasta restaurant and this is production of fanisugi um sauces sauces sauces. is this is vegetarian vegetarian corner vegetables corner There's 25 different restaurants, and then there's a mini golf course. Italy World is 20 acres in total, so that's about a quarter the size of Disneyland. They're expecting 10 million visitors a year, which is only a little less than Disneyland, actually. And Italy World is Oscar Farinetti's pride, joy, and crowning achievement. It was still a building site when we visited, but picture a huge former fruit and vegetable warehouse with a cathedral ceiling, Except for now, it's surrounded by greenhouses and little paddocks and vineyards. As far as actual Disney-like rides go, so Oscar did tell us there would be rides, but what he calls rides? Turns out they're more like museum installations where you learn about the human relationship with fire or beer or whatever. There will be a holographic fire, but don't expect thrills and spills. On the other hand, you can pick up a specially designed Bianchi bicycle. It has a basket in the front and one in the back with a refrigerated container. And you can ride your bike down the length of the whole place. It's about three quarters of a mile from end to end. There's even a section on the future of food. Okay, so digitally you see all the the plants growing, Mm -hmm. but actually you will be able to do it yourself for real. So you you take the the little seed, you plant it, there will be webcams there, so you can actually monitor your plant growing. It's cool, you can watch your little tomato seedling growing on your cell phone, and then when it's grown, you can go back and pick it up, which is really cute. And in fact, Oscar's vision of the future of food is, unsurprisingly, pretty rose-tinted. We talked to Sebastiano Sardo. He used to work with the Slow Food Organization before he joined Italy. And now he's the one who's in charge of figuring out how to get all the animals, plants, and food artisans all together in one giant theme park. But he told us not everything gets the green light. There was the project of, of, of getting some insects, also because they're starting to raise insects for food, but we didn't feel it so attractive. I don't know. It was so... Bah. We may all be eating insects in 20 years, but that's not part of the Eatly World experience. It's a theme park. But Oscar really does want visitors to understand more of the story behind their food, the way it's grown and processed. That's something he tries to communicate with words and pictures at a regular Eatly store, but there is something magical about seeing it in person. Not all of Oscar's poetic dreams can be translated into reality, though. The buffaloes, 
I would have loved to have some buffaloes, but it was difficult. You need water buffalo milk to make the famous Italian buffalo mozzarella. But the buffaloes, even Sebastiano, couldn't make that work. Because they need more space. And they need more space. They don't need a context full of people like this one. They're quite wild. And we've been told that buffaloes can become very uh, nervous about it. Uh, so, you know, we, we decided not to put them. No one wants to deal with an anxious water buffalo. And then there's the issue of the white truffles. <laughs> the, the truffles are all that. Yep, white truffles are very delicious, but we don't actually know how to farm them. So, during truffle season, fresh truffles, harvested somewhere else, will have to be buried in the ground every night for visitors to go, quote, truffle hunting with specially trained dogs the next day. Hey, it's a theme park. Not everything in there is real. So there's no bugs and no water buffaloes. Instead, there's lots and lots of poetry. But here's the thing. Poems don't pay the bills. And Eatly World is going to be free. No $100 Disney Park Pass there. So how is Oscar making this all add up? There will be no entrance ticket here, so money will come from the people's experiences. So their their choices to attend courses, events, eat here, buy food. Tiziana Primori is the CEO of FICO, the company that was created to run Italy World. She's got decades of experience in the business world. She fully expects to have Italy World make money, and she has the business plans to show for it. First, nothing you do once you get inside Italy World is free. The truffle hunting? That costs money. So do the pasta-making classes, and the gelato you'll eat after your beach volleyball, and of course all the meals and drinks you can consume there, and all the groceries you'll buy to make those same meals at home. Everything will be paid at the at the end, so your cashier the cashier will be at the end. So actually, you. So any event you decide to do, it just kind of gets ticked off, and then. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Oh man, that could be dangerous. Oh yeah, I think (laughs) that's kind of the point. (laughs) And on top of visitors, tourists, and locals alike dropping serious cash on all the food and activities, then there's the hospitality side of the business. There's a giant conference center. There's a dance floor. There's even a chapel if you want to get married at Eatly World. So that hospitality stuff, that's another revenue stream. And then Sunil Gupta told us there's the intangible value. So this, the Italy world by itself may still make money, but the impact of Italy world will be far more on the stores around the world. Sunil thinks that the impact of Italy world and the millions of people who will visit, it'll help make Italy even more of a global brand. After experiencing Italy world, all those tourists will then want to visit the Italy stores in their home countries. And Oscar's pretty confident he's going to be able to entice millions of people to Bologna. I want that in the future, the foreign tourists come in Italy and say, okay, I want to go in Venice, in Florence, and in Italy world. And I think that will be. This wonderland of food is opening its doors to the public in just a few weeks on the 15th of November. And I actually really want to go back. When I first heard about Italy World, I thought it sounded like a total nightmare. Disney is my personal version of hell. And plus, you know, like any good urban hipster, I'm all about the tiny undiscovered gems rather than malls and megastores. But Oscar's enthusiasm is contagious. And 
I'm curious. I want to see if he can pull it off. Yeah. I mean, I was afraid it really was like Disney, like crazy kitschy rides and chocolate fountains everywhere. Not that I have anything against chocolate fountains, but it sounds like a lot of fun. I want to see the cheese being made and the olive oil press and the grape harvest. Plus, I wouldn't mind searching for truffles, even if they're planted, as long as I get to eat them afterwards. But we are talking about how we shop for food this episode. And is Italy World really the future of food retail? I mean... Even Oscar thinks it's a one-off. He's not planning to build another. We are probably not going to see an Italy World-style store in every town. Still, retailers are seeing some of the same trends that Oscar predicted a decade ago, and they're starting to follow suit. Some Whole Foods, for instance, they have fancy all-glass meat aging rooms built into the store, in-store taco trucks, roof deck farms and restaurants. Sunil predicts more and more food businesses are going to have to learn from Oscar's model to survive in an Amazon-dominated world. Almost every supermarket is moving up this experience path. It's a trend that Michael sees, too. In his book, Grocery, he followed his local Cleveland supermarket chain called Heinen's. And their newest store is more than a little like an Italy. You know, you walk in there, it's a powerful force. It's like a cathedral of food. And the point is, this new Heinen's in downtown Cleveland is a place for shoppers to do more than just buy food. It's an experience. They can go upstairs and have a, a glass of wine, 40 different wines, or they can have six to eight different kinds of craft beers. Um, they can get a hot meal. There's a vast salad bar, salads made daily. It's virtually a full-service restaurant where you can actually buy the wine at, at normal retail prices. Um, people are meeting there. They have, you know, socials. They have oysters on Friday nights and things like that. So it's serving more as a social hub. And then you've got the people who live in the area coming in for their Cheerios and their uh, potatoes and their milk and coffee. But that part, the Cheerios aisle, that's the part of the supermarket that's endangered. It's too easy to get those commodity, non-perishable goods delivered by Amazon the very same afternoon for less. There may always be some sort of cheap grocery store around for people who need something immediately. There may. But Michael walked around to this gorgeous new Cleveland Heinen's, and he asked owner Jeff Heinen what he thought the future of his business held. And he looked out over the vast sort of center of the store where all that commodity goods are, the Cheerios and the soda waters and the paper towels and the um, cake mixes and all that stuff. He said, you know, I see this center of the store shrinking. You know, this is all going to go away. And all we're going to have is especially goods, you know, as grocers. We may go back to where we started, being purveyors of, of very fine specialty goods. That may be our future. It makes sense. The supermarket was born in a particular time and place. It fit the logic of suburbs and cars and a society that wanted cheaper and cheaper food. Today, there are new forces in play, online shopping and delivery, a growing concern for where our food comes from. And so, how we buy food will change to reflect that. That's the real lesson of Italy, that the places we shop for food are a way to understand our evolving relationship with food. Now, now we go to eat, uh, yes. because I like to eat. I think Sorry. it's very important. And with that, Oscar dropped the mic. And so will we. Once again, a huge, huge thanks to Tony Mazzaglia for translating and basically making everything happen. Go to Florence and take her food tour, tasteflorence.com. Thanks also to Silvia Zanelli for helping coordinate our visit to Figo Italy World and everyone at Italy who spoke with us. You can see pictures from our exclusive behind-the-scenes visit on our website, gastropod.com. Thanks also to Sunil Gupta of Harvard Business School and Michael Rollman. His new book is called Grocery, The Buying and Selling of Food in America. We'll be back in two weeks with a special Halloween theme. Yeah, so 
thankfully, I didn't actually do any sort of, uh, I didn't have to do any practical elements of the study. Um, I, did, I did do quite extensive research and I really couldn't find anything that was done uh, on a concrete kind of way to establish the calorie values of a human. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more.